0: You're listening to The Law Firms of the Future, presented by Zero. The views expressed in this interview are those of our guest as an individual and do not reflect the views of Lathrop GPM. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Firms of the Future. My name is Bernie Toledano. I'm the head of marketing at Zero and the host of this podcast. Here with me today is Jillian Power. Chief Information Officer at Lathrop GPM. In her role, Jillian is responsible for aligning the strategic direction of the firm's technology, information governance, and management and information services. She serves on the firm's Enterprise Risk Management Committee and Culture, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee. Jillian is an active member in the legal technology community, having served for five years as a committee member, including two as a thought leader for the annual International Legal Technology Association, also known as ILTA Conference. So welcome, Jillian. it's great to have you here.
1: Hi, Bernie, thank you so much for having me
0: on. Yeah, thanks for joining. So let's start with you telling me a bit more about yourself and about your firm, and you know the firm's history and what they've been doing to survive the pandemic.
1: Great, thank you. So later, GPM was formed um, on january first of twenty twenty as the combination of Lathrop gage and gray plant moody um both firms have a very long history in the midwest um and beyond um with with you know both of the firms being well over hundred and fifty years old um, individually um and uh, the firms came together to um really form a, a very strong and, and wonderful combination um, I would say that for any of my peers and and um, folks who have worked in law firm technology they'll know that a merger um, of two large firms is by itself a um, substantial undertaking for people working in the technologies in the technology space um, and then, we were thrown probably one of the most historic curveballs that one could even contemplate. And um, I'm extremely proud of the team of people that I have the the honor of leading um, who mobilized um, on a dime and uh, d- did everything needed to, to move the firm to but, but a fully remote um, experience. Which has been um, very successful, um, and has really, in, in the words of our of our CEO, has probably helped save lives. So it's not often as technologists that we get credited for saving lives, um, but it but it is probably statistically accurate uh, to describe it that way. Um, but for us uh, as technologists. Um, this just accelerated many of the things that we had already made investments in. Um, so it, it, while, it'd been, while it was very pressured, um, it was well within our wheelhouse to go ahead and, and put in place um, and scale up all the technologies that support a, a remote workforce, um, or let's say a workforce that now works wherever they are. As opposed to having to be localized in an office. Um, So it's, uh, it's definitely something that will go down and for myself and for many of our peers as as defining moments in our careers when we look back
0: Absolutely. It's just crazy sometimes when uh, one has time to stop and think about the fact that we're living in a moment of history that's going to be written about in textbooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's really nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great that Lathrop Spin uh, was already somewhat well prepared in a sense uh, for the move to remote working. But before we dive into what it's like to facilitate a merger in the midst of a pandemic, I'd also like to make sure that we talk a little bit about your personal background?
1: Certainly, um, I I get asked by many people in the United States about where my accent is from, and um, it's, uh, or I get asked, I get told you have an accent, to which I generally respond, you have an accent too. Um, but for those who are listening to this and wondering, I can't place that it's um, because I grew up in South Africa and spent some time living in London but um, had an Irish father and don't have anything that is is easily labeled as a particular accent Um, I often get confused for a a Kiwi or an Australian um, or an English person or or all manner of things but um, I've lived in the United States for Uh, close on 20 years now um, and my accent remains largely intact though it is having intrusions with numerous colloquialisms that I sometimes catch myself saying surprisingly Um, I uh, have um, been uh, working in the technology space and the legal technology space for nearly 20 years um, and I cut my teeth originally at Dentons in London, um, started at the bottom uh, working on the service desk at night time um, and progressed in my career to my current position as CIO. Um, uh, perhaps, as part of what we'll discuss a little bit later, as well, is I'm also exceptionally passionate about um, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, largely um, in many parts informed my my identity as a transgender woman, um, someone who came out in my leadership role and have um, continued to be publicly out and um, using my um, success and and privilege to um, create space for other people um, in an area where um, there isn't necessarily space for, for people like me. Um, and uh, so this permeates a lot of my thinking um, and um, is a very powerful lens through which I see uh, leadership challenges and, um, and opportunities.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And I'm really excited to dive into your diversity and inclusion experience and your thoughts later. It's such an important issue, but especially at this time when a lot of issues in the US and challenges are coming to an head within law schools and within law firms, uh, it's really more important than ever to think about diversity and inclusion and talk about it and take action. So definitely looking forward to getting into that later this episode. Uh, so before we get to uh, that piece, though, uh, kind of going back to the fact that Lathrop is uh, the product of this merger between Lathrop Gauge and Gray Plant Moody, uh, what's it been like to facilitate this merger from a cultural perspective in the midst of this pandemic?
1: I have some background noise at the moment from yeah. a, small, a small child. Um, <laughs> it's so. Work from home life <laughs> exactly. Um, so, uh, I think that's part of it. Actually, that's a let me let me welcome that in as a as an entry point. Um, we are we are dealing with with unprecedented times. Um, there is no uh, there is no effective separation between the the personal and the business. Um, I argue that it's never truly existed. Um, especially, um, when we consider that our lifelines and tethers to our worlds typically sit as 6.8 inch devices on our desks for COVID, right? And you know, we've never been able to, uh, employers have never been able to really stop that intrusion. I still remember the old days when you had to call in and be screened by the receptionist before you know, someone could, someone in your family could reach you at work, right? So now it's there are no boundaries, and and I think that COVID like has accelerated change on all levels, um, and we're still making sense of that in many regards. We're still making sense of the implications of that. Um, so to lead, to lead in a in a in a merger situation in a pandemic um, there's nothing that prepares you for it at all other than preparing for it and what i mean by that is having a team of people who are highly competent who are agile in the way that they operate and who operate at high trust is the key but that type of preparation is foundational preparation for any challenge um, it, it's the type of preparation that prepares you for things that you can't plan for. Because within that context, you tap the creative resources and the, and the, and the, the caring abilities of people to mobilise around whatever the problem is that, that is presented. And that's the investment that I believe we should be making irrespective of what the planning is. When I saw firsthand how that played out with people that that did not have to be coerced or or um forced to put in the hours necessary to um, to do a merger and then turn around and respond to a pandemic um because the people just inherently cared because they themselves knew that they were cared about um in the work that they were doing and um, it's, it's a wonderful thing to behold and it's, it's the same old adage, right? It's, it's the strength of the team um, that carries the day um, irrespective of the challenges that come and it, it's wonderful from a leadership point of view to see that those fundamentals play out even in extreme circumstances um, and that makes me very happy.
0: That's wonderful. Uh, it's great that you've been able to kind of put together and nurture such a functional team. Uh, so that's that's great. And so kind of turning to the topic of other law firms, uh, what do you think law firms generally need to do more of to drive efficiency in the delivery of legal services and during these times but beyond that? And what are things that they should stop doing?
1: Um. You know, I'm gonna steal a little bit from something that I picked up from a friend of mine. Um, I think businesses in general have have put too much effort, their control point efforts have been in the wrong place, right? So what I mean by that is measuring the control points at the inputs, as opposed to measuring the outputs is the fundamental shift that we're being forced into here. So to to put some framing on that, to put some some practical examples, requiring, requiring rigid office hours of employees is, is controlling for input, right? Saying to people, thou shalt be in the office these days of the week between these times, and you shall be at your desk between these and these times, and you shall only step away you know, to, you know, to, to have a meal or to use the bathroom at these times, right? We can think of workplaces where that is the, the dominant view of how you control people in an in an attempt to control the quality of the output, right? Mm-hmm. And what what we've been forced into with the pandemic is just a recognition, for instance, people who have care responsibilities in their lives, either for children or um you know other other people or or animals or mammals or whatever it is that need care in their lives they they they're having to be a lot more creative about when they work and how they work and what most people have been saying to businesses is, is measure me on my output don't measure me and my don't measure me on the inputs right and and it is far more efficient to be concerned about the outputs than to be Trying to control the inputs, right? And it, it, it's a it's a very fundamental shift that has implications to the way that that firms think about the way that firms think about it, um, because. But the mar- what the what the market I believe has been telling law firms is, um, you know, for the longest time, um, you know, we don't like the billable hour. The billable hour is a is a poor proxy for the value of the services that we're receiving. Um, what we care about is the most efficient risk management that you can deliver to us, legal risk management that you can deliver to us. Um, but but, but we have a business model, you know, that the industry has a business model that struggles with um, finding other ways to demonstrate value, right? And just as we're seeing a shift in the way that individual people are being measured on their value now, so too will this just accelerate the shift towards measuring outcome-based value. Um, And this is going to accelerate a a shift and it's going to feel seismic, I think, to a lot of people, but all it is is a shift that's already been underway for you know more than a decade or more, right I mean really, since the last crisis that you know the economy faced twelve years ago with the with the g a f c it's the same shift, but here it is just just really accelerated so thinking about how to support that and thinking about how the business is is run and structured i think is the is where I'm spending a lot of my time um Know, as a technology leader, think about how to support that um, and how to encourage it
0: I think uh that's I think that's great, and especially now during this time, this conversation about the billable hours is definitely super relevant because people can't be tethered to a desk uh, and mm-hmm. need that kind of flexibility and mobility, but they might be delivering the exact same output or even better, and that's mm-hmm. a much better. And we've interviewed a number of general counsels on this uh, podcast. And I don't think a single one has said that they would like their law firm to work more hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, definitely I think that's a really uh, good way to look at it. Um, so kind of turning to the subject of diversity and inclusion. So I'd love to hear about your work within DNI and uh, in the legal sector
1: So last, uh, last year, Joy Heathrush, who is the CEO of ILTA, reached out to me and said, we're wanting to form a diversity and inclusion task force, um, because ILTA is choosing to, has chosen to add diversity and inclusion as one of its central pillars, um, central operating pillars. And uh, Joy and I have known, known each other for a very long time, and as I jokingly have said but truthfully said um when joy asks you you say yes (laughs) because joy is one of those leaders who um is it it, well it's candidly a joy to work with her um without trying to make a pun but it's truthfully (laughs) so um and you know i have I've often railed against the lack of diversity within technology and, and legal technology. Um, that there's a lot of really bad structural problems, um, with, you know, within it. That you know the culture can be very exclusionary to minorities, to women, um, to you know, gender and sexual minorities as well. The, you know, you know, in terms of you know, in terms of fundamentals um there are given any technology problem that we might encounter there are more ways to solve technology problems than than most people on a team can conceive of right and the worst outcome for me as a as a cio is if we keep solving the same problems in the same way Right, um, because the 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 intrinsic business value of any particular solution to a problem tends to diminish over time right um so if you keep if you actually keep solving a problem in the same way every time, you're actually taking value out of the business and what I've observed in in my in my time managing and leading people is that teams that are less diverse, tend to promote far more homogenous answers to problems. And, and it has a tendency to drive innovation out of the out of the problem solving process. Right. So doing everything you can to build diverse teams, where people feel included where they where they have a real sense of inclusivity about uh, you know about their position and their opinion, where difference is respected and honoured, um, has a direct correlation to the quality of the solutions and the outcomes that people have. Um, but it also gets rid of groupthink, and it also gets rid of of you know the suppression of ideas, um, because there is no. It, the, the, nobody has a lock on insight, right? I mean, an insight is a is a is a is a fundamental human gift that comes to anybody, right? I mean, so if if your culture tends to exclude all opportunities for insight, your results over time are going to be fundamentally suboptimal. So there is a business, there's, I mean, there's a business reason, for one, um, and I tend to like to lead with that. Um, but probably even more important is, there's there's ultimately a moral reason. Um, and I don't actually see the moral reason and the business reason as being unrelated, because when, When you indicate that you care, that you substantively care about diversity, that you substantively care about the work of improving inclusivity and raising equity, people realize that it's not just about the business, right? It, It isn't just the pure transaction of running the business, that it is about a set of standards and a set of moral imperatives that that inspire people. It produces alignment, right? It produces engagement and alignment in what people do. Now, the the challenge is you have to manage through some of the discomfort, right? Because people tend to want to gravitate to people that are like them or think like them because it's easier, right? Um, you know, I uh, one of the one of the people that works for for Zero that works with you, Bernie, is a fellow South African and when 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 Ryan and I speak cuz we both grew up in the same city we both grew up surfing Ryan and I just drop right into the vernacular right so I had a text message I actually had a text message with Ryan today where I was saying you know when when are we going to do coffee and rusks right and everyone on the podcast, what are rusks they're you know they're a, they're a type of dried biscuit that are you know a, a type of comfort food in South Africa We drop right into the vernacular because we we share a common vernacular, even though we didn't know each other in South Africa, but we still have a common vernacular that we can drop into. And it's a lot of fun. And We'll often stop, you know, throwing jokes and Afrikaans to each other, which is even more fun because I don't get to do that very much. But it's an indication, right? Like this is what people do. They gravitate towards people they know, people are comfortable with. And that's great. Right, it's fun, it's easy, but in a business context, it doesn't stretch people. Right, it doesn't it doesn't cause them to to step outside of themselves and really listen to the perspectives that other people have. But from a leadership point of view, you have to model it. You have to, as they, as 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 I've said before, you have to disrupt the flow of bias. Right. That, that exists and you have to show people that that difference is valued. Differences of opinion, differences of expression, differences are, is, is valued. And that, and that ultimately from business point of view, what you care about is insight. What you care about is creativity. What you care about is curiosity. What you care about is innovation. And nobody has a lock on those. Nobody has ah. a lock on those. Everyone has access to them but they have to be given the space to be able to manifest them in the work that they do.
0: Yeah, no, I think I absolutely agree. I mean, we live in a global world these days Mm -hmm. and especially law firms today, and especially with just the proliferation of all these mergers are global entities serving global clients and clients are also focusing on promoting diversity in their hiring Mm -hmm. practices as they should. Mm -hmm. So law firms also, I think, need to uh, try to meet the clients where they are on that and not continue to put forward the same team that proposes solutions that um, are not don't necessarily address all angles of the problem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, definitely more more important than ever, but um, it's really, really important. Um, So one question, though, I think that kind of comes up a fair amount among lawyers, though, is uh, why should they care? Uh, so how do you address the benefits and the importance of DNI to someone who really doesn't seem to get it, like someone who says, well, the important thing right now is, uh, you know, getting our team to be able to work remotely. We shouldn't be mm-hmm. thinking about uh, kind of hiring quotas or affirmative action or any of that at all. So how do you kind of object to that?
1: In my firm, I don't have to. I'm mm-hmm. very incredibly proud to say that. So I, I don't actually know how I would actually answer that if I was confronted with it. I mean, I'd, I'd certainly try and argue the the business case, and and then if the business case wasn't listened to, I'd still go and influence my own hiring practices, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's just so fundamental. And you know, you know, fire me for hiring diverse people. Come on. <laughs> <You Yeah. know. laughs> I mean, really, it's 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 yeah. you know, it's it, it it's it's the case, but it but I'm incredibly proud of my firm because we're we have a CEO and leadership who are are actively and demonstratively engaged in issues of diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, it's it it's it's really part of the DNA um, of how we function. And, you know, I saw, look, I saw this personally um, when I came out, right? I, it, it, I had, I had colossal fear, right? I don't know. There's no other words to describe it um, because there was no precedent, right? I had no precedent for what I did when I came out in, in, in 2014. Um, yeah, there was certainly, I I did my research and I came across a, handful of attorneys in some New York firms who had come out. Um, I kindly saw some examples of their coming out letters um, and that kind of stuff. But from an administration from, you know, an administrative leadership point of view, the zero template. Um, So I had to to form the template on how to do it. Um, It's one of those things, right? It's very hard. It's you can't test it, because it's once it's out, it's out, right? It, there's no testing of it. You can't be like, so um, Mr. Managing Partner or Mr. Managing Partner, if I was to say to you that I would theoretically and hypothetically that I was transgender, how would you respond to that? That is
0: lawyer language though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You know so it becomes a it, it is a leap of faith in a certain sense you know and um and, and i don't want to circle back to the recent supreme court decision but but it's it it's a to to be valued based on the quality of my contribution to the business and to be valued on that is is outstanding because it's it's a statement of saying that's what matters is the quality of your contribution not your gender expression not your name not any of those things and that's the acceptance part of it but but beyond that to have support is a whole nother thing altogether and and i can still recall um you know the day that my coming out letter um went out to the firm you know my mailbox just blew up right i should say at that point my female box right just blew up <laughs> um once 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 the news had come out and it was just just an outpouring of support just an outpouring of kindness and support and 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 genuine sharing i mean the stories that people told me were were, were outstanding um and that that gives so much encouragement right so you know so comments on the recent um supreme court decision that affirmed that um you know, discrimination on the basis of of sexual expression or or gender identity as discrimination on the basis of sex under Title VII. Um, it's that's a huge relief for a lot of people. Um, it, you know, because I, I mean, in effect, I waited for a long time to come out because it, I, in my mind, I said I had to have a lot. I had to have a lot. You have to have a lot of political capital to come out, right? And i know from the experience of many people of many many people that that hiding your your gender identity or your your um, sexual orientation is an incredibly expensive thing to do personally right it's it's an incredibly expensive it fractures you it fractures you in your ability to function in the world so knowing that people in a sense are now legally protected from employment status in all 50 states of the US. I rejoice for the people that can can be out sooner in their lives. They can live more of their lives authentically than having to wait to a point where they feel that they that they've worked so hard and they've got a lot of political capital, which is what I've told myself, you know, and again, you can't test it, right? In reality, I probably didn't have to wait as long, but you don't know until you do it, right? Um, it's a pretty high stakes thing when you talk about families and jobs and you know, responsibilities that you have.
0: Absolutely, so, but that yeah. still must have been really tough to live almost a double life and um, no one should have to do that.
1: Yeah, it, and from a, from a leadership capacity point of view, it's really expensive. Because when you're when your cognitive processing is in a sense being mediated through it's like you know your internal sense is saying, "Well, I'm this, but I need to think about presenting as this, and then I need to like do this translation all the time so that no one can see or possibly even determine who I am internally. That's like really expensive right like that's that's like running you know in a sense you know for the for the infrastructure nodes out there it's you know it's like running a very in- inefficient hypervisor when ultimately yeah. you just want to run bare metal <laughs> as, yeah. you, as we say right i mean you just, you just want to run you want to run on the native hardware so um
0: no, and actually, I mean, I love the way you just put that that it's expensive, because I think um, too often businesses in general, think about, um, you know, just initiatives and just and policies in terms of cost. But there are so many costs in life and in practice that are hidden. Mm-hmm. And I think with mm-hmm. law firms, this also comes up a lot with the issue of mental health and burnout. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, some of these problems are really expensive. But mm-hmm. if, if you can't see it on a financial statement, it's like it doesn't exist.
1: Well, and you can actually, but you just have to be you have you have to be intentional about measuring it, right mm-hmm. you know i mean, but burnout you can measure if you choose if you choose to measure it right i mean if you if you burn out associates um and they leave, like you lose a big investment when people if people leave because they burn out or you know somewhere along the way right there's that's very expensive i I know in in the technology space that burnout is not just expensive, it's, it's dangerous. Because when, when, when people who have system access make mistakes, they can be very expensive to the business, right? And, and, and managing and, and measuring for burnout is very, very important. It's very challenging in this remote working situation because you've got to really listen to how people are day to day on and on to, to be able to see when someone is at their capacity or beyond their capacity, because the odds are at minimum, it's going to take them longer to solve problems. And in worst case scenario, they'll make an error in a configuration and cause some kind of outage, etc. And then you can spend days cleaning it up or, you know, uh, you know, the, all the down, downstream problems that come from it. So it just like it doesn't make sense. But besides, do you really want to be that boss? Do you really want to be that person that doesn't care? Right. I mean, some people do, but you know, I mean, they have to live with themselves ultimately.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. And in kind of thinking about what you want to see in your employees, uh, even though you don't manage uh, the lawyers at the law firm, I'm curious to hear from your perspective, working within this industry for such a long time, what you would want to see. In the next generation of lawyers,
1: uh, certainly more people um, understanding and engaging with technology during their education um, um, you know even if they're even if they' are taking electives. Um, along the way that give them some exposure. If they can't do that, reading, um, thinking about the way the technology can increase the value that they bring, um, understanding, I suppose even most fundamentally, how value is actually produced within legal services, right, um, and then thinking about what they can do and the skills that they can they can gain that will increase that value. Right. And it's invariably a lot of the time it's technology or the application of technology that, that increases that value. Um and and there's certainly there's certainly more of it. But just, you know, you know, being adept at, at Slack and TikTok and owning a MacBook isn't enough, right? I mean, there's there there is a set of you know, there's certainly a set of skills there that people can think about they can be, I mean, they could be applied statistical skills, they could be, you know, even learning some Python or understanding some of the fundamentals of AI and machine learning. Those are all good, those are all good things to have, because they're so central now to the delivery of many legal services, even if they're not aware of how they're consuming them, because they at this point behind the scenes.
0: Absolutely. Um, And it's interesting that issue um, has also come up with some of the general counsels that I've interviewed that they've said that they think that It's, um, you know, incredibly important for their lawyers to be aware of the technologies and be able to use the technologies that can help them improve the way that they deliver legal services. Um, So beyond the billing tool, uh, you know, I think the uh, kind of the specific skills you just raised. Mm-hmm. Uh, about kind of AI and ML and um, Python those and understanding those basics will be really important for the next generation mm-hmm. of lawyers. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, it'll great it'll be great to see CIOs working more closely with first year associates as they come in to maybe help them ramp up.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean even even on a summer break, like you know, taking a, a an online course on how to do formatting in Word. Is, mm. is as 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 apparently rudimentary as that is is still incredibly valuable oh or, as a
0: former legal marketer i relate to that hard i've <laughs> formatted so many powerpoints <laughs> I, you know, yeah you, know, <laughs> um,
1: you yeah. know understanding what a numbered list is or you know bullet point list or you know how to you know how to do stuff that's good um you know that i mean there it's it's basic but they're already f- really fundamental skills um you know effective email writing you know um, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's there's just a lot out there and and the, the problem the problem isn't that the problem isn't that you can't learn this stuff now i mean you don't have to go to the computer store and buy the book on word any longer you know i remember the days of you know here's word 95 that you could go buy at the computer store and Mm -hmm. sit down and put the cd in your computer and learn how to do that you don't have to do that anymore but it's really about saying what are the skills that i need to acquire that are going to make me more effective that are going to make me more efficient right that can speed up repetitive things that i'm doing or you know enhance you know enhance those um spend the time to Learn how to mute yourself on zoom yes you know? <laughs> or or um, learn how to find the touch up appearance button, which we were joking <laughs> uh, joking about earlier um, before we started but these 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 things in aggregate matter um, to to the delivery of the product
0: yep. absolutely, yeah, and that's another area where there are definitely some hidden costs if it takes thirty minutes to figure out why your proposal to a client isn't formatting correctly at like mm-hmm. 7 pm on a friday mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. yeah you're much better off just knowing how to use word mm-hmm. uh, so definitely worth worth the investment there yeah. um so my last question is really about um kind of going back to the name of this podcast where you see the law firms of the future going
1: it's a big it's a big landscape. Um, and i will but I'll come right back to i'll right I'll come right back to the fundamentals in my view. the The practice of law is a very sophisticated application of the practice of risk management. Right? it's a, It's a highly sophisticated s- system with with an incredible amount of history. That is, there's ultimately an application of risk management, right? And risk management as a is an incredibly large domain. Um, is is developing a lot of tools to aid in predictive risk management, right? And and getting better at understanding risk and predicting risk, right? The clients of law firms, at the end of the day, are essentially buying risk management but it's labeled as legal services, right? So if you can shift your frame of reference and say, what does it mean to apply risk management to the delivery of legal services? That's, that I think is, that's the true north on this, right? Now that's a very, that that's not giving people any bullet points about what they need to go and do right now or tomorrow, but I think you know that's the challenge right and and that's why i spend a lot of a lot of my time thinking about on ways that i can you know you know assist the business in that um, the and with you know with a natural bent towards technology that you know the the systems of predictive risk management are becoming so sophisticated and so accurate in the way that they're approaching them, that the shift really is towards actually the delivery of a legal product that is made up of products and services, right? It's, I mean, you you know, I don't want to, I don't want to diminish how important the service aspect of it is. But but ultimately it's the, it's the consumption of a product that empowers the client to better manage the risk within their portfolio at the end of the day, right? So, um, and I think there's incredible opportunity to, to take that and think it through, right? And the tools are there, many of the tools are there. It's about pulling them together and delivering them in a way that this isn't esoteric um, or you know, or, you know, Elon Musk space, you know, space stuff or anything like that. It's a, it's a reframing of of what it is.
0: Um, um, I completely uh, agree with you. I think often law students are educated purely on legal theory and then, uh, actually advising clients. And I think the actual day to day of being a lawyer can come as surprising. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's a really good way to frame the profession, not only for lawyers, but just for law students or anyone thinking about practicing yeah. law in a real kind of practice sense um yeah. yeah so uh thank you again for joining me today this was a really great conversation thanks
1: bonnie it was a lot of fun thanks for having <laughs> me having me on and and uh have a have a wonderful weekend you too okay bye
0: bye from zero this is the law firms of the future if you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'd also like to introduce you to the Rainmaker Podcast, created by our friends at Legalist, a tech-enabled litigation finance firm. The Rainmaker Podcast interviews top litigators at Amlaw 200 firms about how they made partner. Past guests have included Rainmakers at Kirkland & Ellis, Sussman Godfrey, and Holland and & Knight. So if you're enjoying our show, you might like the Rainmaker podcast as well. So go on and give it a listen.